I have had this experience for the last several years of deciding that I'm going to unwind by finding a great TV show or movie, or not even great, just like a watchable TV show or movie. And I'll start at 10 p.m. and I'll just spend like the next three hours watching trailers or the first 10 minutes of a show and be like, oh, this is bad. And then I will go to sleep unsatisfied and just exhausted by my quest. By the start of last year, Peak TV was a quantitative fact, not a critical assessment. 532 scripted original television series had been produced in 2019, up from around 200 a decade earlier. That number doesn't even include reality shows, soap operas, or kids' programs, which would have doubled it. And it's likely the number of original TV shows would have kept growing if not for the COVID-19 pandemic, which delayed production throughout the entertainment industry at the same time as it increased demand for its product. Streaming service subscriptions passed a billion worldwide for the first time in 2020. The entertainment business has seemingly never been better, but those figures and Laura's viewing dilemma led us to ask some questions about the movie and television industries. How has this explosion in production affected the people who actually make these movies and shows? And why is it so hard to find something good to watch? I'm Alex Perrine. And I'm Laura Marsh. This is The Politics of Everything. We're talking now with Kyle Chaker, who's written about streaming culture for the New Republic and elsewhere. Kyle, so Alex and I have been talking a lot about the way that streaming has affected the process of just finding TV and movies to watch. What's your impression, I guess, of what you call discovery? Is it getting harder to find something to do if you just want to watch something at night? I think it is. Streaming always promised this endless choice. Like, you can watch anything you want. We're going to recommend the best stuff for you all the time. And that's what made it better than cable TV, which was just a passive watching experience. You turn it on, you watch whatever's happening. But instead of that, we're just faced with the endless options and nothing super appealing. And so we just end up being confused, I think. When the streaming services first launched as streaming services, so like I'm not talking about the DVD by mail era of Netflix, but the kind of streaming era of Netflix or Amazon Prime, there was this golden age for like two years or something where you could go on Amazon Prime and like every Alfred Hitchcock movie was just available to you to stream or there were all these brilliant classics that you could suddenly access but it feels like something has changed in recent years where that stuff just slowly left the platforms (laughs) and the stuff that replaced it (laughs) was very different totally in the beginning there were just a few streaming options like netflix or amazon or whatever and those platforms gathered a huge amount of content so you could watch whatever you wanted on one or the other. But then as more and more platforms came in, people are competing for the same backlog of shows. You don't know where the show you want to watch is. And then on top of that, all of a sudden, Netflix comes in. And instead of offering you the old shows that you want to watch that you like, it's no, you're going to watch Netflix original content because that's cheaper for us to produce. It's going to make more money for us in the long run. Instead of Alfred Hitchcock, we're going to show you like... 18 holiday movies that we just made in three months. (laughs) But there was this idea several years ago when Netflix started making its own content that like, oh, they're going to green light all this really creative, amazing stuff that old fashioned studios were too fusty to support. And there was that moment when Transparent came out where people were like, 
see, this show is really good and no one else would make it. This is what streaming can deliver. I guess my question is, do you have a sense of why we didn't get more transparency or why that's such a small portion of what Netflix original content and these other platforms is delivering? It's hard to make good original content. You can't just generate a slew of 18 new madmen's. And I do think the streaming has like served a lot of niches, but it's not the niches that we thought were going to be served. It's not like prestige drama. Mm-hmm. It's not like gripping literary accomplishments through TV. Instead, it's like a hundred different baking shows. <laughs> or like, right. Instead, it's like a million different true crime shows, like a million variations on making a murderer. Do you think there are certain breakout hits that these companies had and just decided to replicate again and again? Yeah, I think it's like scaling ethos or the tech company ethos behind the cultural generation of this stuff. Like, okay, we're going to drag in a bunch of subscribers with super high-end prestige content, the most ambitious, cool stuff. Then we're going to figure out which models or patterns work a la true crime documentaries or whatever. And then we're just going to iterate those over and over and over again until we extract every amount of capital and profit that we can from them. And our viewers are utterly bored. Well, it's the customer acquisition part, right? I remember Amazon's first originals, they made a huge deal about these pilots they were launching, and it was very much in the prestige TV model. So then you acquire, you acquire customers, and then you use your algorithm to see what are the things they're watching. And then you produce more sort of generic things based on what their behavior was. I sort of likened it to how Amazon actually treated every other kind of product in the entire world. We all turned to Amazon because it was the most convenient place to get product X. And then when they saw what we were buying, they started offering shoddy knockoff or generic or bootleg versions of product X across every line. I feel like that's kind of what happened with the movies and TV that are now getting produced. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's totally the case. You find a genre that works, you find like a category that works, and then it's like, how can we produce as many of these as cheaply as possible? Yeah, one of the shows that comes to mind is The Resurrection of Unsolved Mysteries. Have you seen this? And a lot of the things that are featured as like unsolved mysteries on the show are like woman, brutally murdered, we think we know who did it but they haven't been formally charged. You're kind of like, is that an unsolved mystery? (laughs) But it's just more content. It's like fits that sweet spot of like stuff you already know, stuff that was like around in the past, and it's about murder. It's my impression that maybe one of the primary genres of screening, like for some (laughs) reason, people just want to watch about murder like 24-7, wall-to-wall, like murder, sports, baking. That's it. There's three options. And if you want something outside of that, like, good luck. I was just looking at my Netflix homepage, actually. And a big category for me is romantic international TV shows, (laughs) which basically means Emily in Paris, but in every different country that exists. Right. So it's like Emily in Paris, but in Spain, which is Valerie, or like Emily in Paris, but in Norway, which is home for Christmas. They're just endless iterations of the same pattern from different countries, which I find fascinating. One thing I want to figure out is how different what the streaming platforms are doing is from what networks used to do. Because networks knew how many people were watching the most popular shows. They had ratings. So they could see like this crappy sitcom got like millions of viewers. And then 
decide to greenlight a bunch more sitcoms in that vein. Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, they all have an algorithm. What's the difference in the kind of data that can give the company and then it's coming back to the consumer? Like, How does that change the shows that are being made and then that you're being served? I think we have to separate the data collection into kind of two sides where on one side, Netflix has access to more data about when the viewer is engaged or not. They can see what you're looking at on the homepage. They can tell how far you watched into a show. And I think at least that is way more data and granular data than cable TV providers had access to. But then on the other side, when we talk about the algorithm, I think we're often talking about recommendation algorithms or like automatic recommendations. So that data about your engagement with content is then used to figure out like which shows Netflix is going to recommend to you. And that's where the automation comes in, I think. This is the part that puzzles me because these algorithms are meant to be so tailored to serving you the thing that you want to watch. But every time I click on Netflix, it's like, the 50th show about a woman who was murdered. And that's exactly what I can't have no stomach for anymore. So much stuff it shows me is just, we don't have anything that's tailored to you. So here's some stuff you don't want. The algorithm, we're so smart. Yeah, I think it's gotten less algorithmic actually, or there's still the marketing message of, oh, we're tailoring what shows up on your homepage to you individually. When really it's gotten more and more of a percentage of just like, here's our newest Netflix stuff, Mm -hmm. or here's what's most popular right now. I wonder how much of it is snake oil. I was joking about this with Laura, but, you know, over years and years and years, every music recommendation algorithm that exists from Spotify to Tidal to YouTube has not been able to figure out that I just don't like The Cure. But that's like a completely subjective judgment I have. I like a lot of things that sound like it. Laura might have the demographic profile of a person who wants to see more true crime about women getting murdered. The algorithm can't figure out quality, can't figure out subjectivity and quality. And like, I don't think it's going to be able to. No, I don't think it will be able to. I think right now it's mostly operating on genre terms. Okay, you like true crime, so I'm going to give you more true crime. It's not like... You like good stuff, so I'm giving you (laughs) more good stuff. Though I think like it triangulates somewhere because I get a lot of mediocre real estate shows, which is fantastic. It's really working for me in that way. It feels like it doesn't even have to be like they should serve me good stuff. If there was a mediocre content tag, like a just like watchable, kind of good real estate show, like I don't need five stars. 3.7 would be the sweet spot for me to be like, oh, here is a show about someone who flipped a house that's 3.7 stars. I will watch that for 20 minutes. But that seems like completely missing from these services. I think a big problem that we're all encountering is that there's no way of giving feedback to the recommendations aside from just watching it. Watching or not watching. Yeah. There's no way to be like, okay, I'm going to turn off this genre. Or like on Spotify, you can't be like, never play me a Phoebe Bridgers song ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone wishes that option existed. The algorithmic feeds will always find a way to put something back in your face that you did not want to see or hear. And it's just we don't have control over them. Is it specific to streaming services that try to provide full-length TV shows and films? For instance, is the Instagram algorithm or the TikTok algorithm better? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think with... Netflix and streaming services, there's much less data. So like you decide whether or not to watch a TV episode once every 30 minutes or hour. 
Whereas you decide to listen to a song or not every three minutes and you decide to watch a TikTok or not every <laughs> five, five to 30 seconds. And so TikTok, I think, does go the farthest in terms of giving you a feed that's tailored to what you're actually interested in. Netflix couldn't do that because you're not watching a different TV show every 30 seconds. Do you think then that this whole idea of like a revolution in tasted TV just won't happen in that kind of content? Like Netflix basically are the same, more or less, as the way networks operated. And that this kind of bigger change in how you find stuff will be more limited to shorter content and music and, I don't know, clothing recommendations. Yeah, I think the Netflix homepage has certainly changed how we decide what to watch. But I don't know if it's changed what our taste in what to watch is necessarily. Whereas I think... TikTok is absolutely shaping what we expect from music and how dances look. And Instagram is affecting how products look and how things are marketed. I wonder how the experience of having a sort of bottomless well of things to watch, but that extends primarily back only a few years, is going to change the way people watch movies and TV and change what kind of viewers they are. Yeah, I always think about when you develop a taste in something, it's almost a historical act. It like happens over time. You figure out what you like, you seek it out in older artists or filmmakers or whatever, and you gradually develop a vocabulary and a series of artists that you pursue. And I think the dynamic quality of the Netflix homepage and the fact that their archive is always changing destroys the ability to develop that long-term sense of taste. Do you think there is less good stuff being made or is it just harder to find it? Because <laughs> there is some good stuff. We just did an episode in Succession. I think it's a fantastic drama, like one of the best dramas that's come out in a long time. There is good stuff being made. But unless it reaches the level of discussion or like prominence in the discourse that show has, it's pretty hard to know where to find it. This is actually an interesting difference, right? Because Succession is an HBO show, and HBO has expanded what that means now that it's HBO Max, but that's the old cable model. These brands of the cable channels meant something. I would know what a Bravo show is compared to an HGTV show. And if Netflix is everything, it's the everything store like Amazon, but for content, does that make it harder to find the good things because you don't have those codes and hints that tell you this is the good thing? Or does it actually make everything that they make worse? <laughs> I think it's definitely harder to find the good stuff. There's more stuff to dig through. There's worse interfaces. And I do think that brand identity is a problem. You have to know what you're looking for. But then perhaps what streaming is delivering is just not the kind of high quality masterpiece that we want. It's not delivering the successions of the world. It's delivering like... A very broad band of what I wrote about as ambient TV, which is just pleasantly ignorable, <laughs> nice to look at, thinly plotted stuff. Some of it's better than others, but it's all like, okay, and it's going to be totally not memorable in five years. Streaming is great at doing that. It's really hitting it out of the park. Well, thanks so much, Kyle. It was awesome talking to you. Thank you. Kyle Taker is working on a book about algorithmic culture called Filter World. We've been talking about how streaming platforms are transforming the kinds of movies and TV shows that are available to watch and what it's like to try to watch them. After a short break, we'll be back to talk about the other side of things, how streaming is affecting the people who make movies and TV.
So we've been talking about the content. We've been talking about how streaming has changed what sorts of shows and movies are made and how we, the viewer, find them. Meanwhile, in Hollywood, there's been significant labor unrest recently, specifically the International Alliance of Theatrical Employees, which is a labor union that represents so-called below-the-line talent, which is not the people on screen, but all the technical people that help make all of these shows and movies possible. They've been threatening to strike about working conditions, and they've been negotiating with the producers. We're joined now by Peter Labuza, who is a historian of the creative industries. And Peter, my question is, are these things related? Is this labor unrest in Hollywood we're seeing related to the rise of streaming? Absolutely. They are extremely related. When you look at what's happened with the streaming revolution over the last 10 years, especially for workers in the Alliance or IATSE, as it's regularly known, they used to work on this sort of schedule of stopping and starting based on the television schedule. So there'd be the fall premieres and the spring premiere. You would put in these 14 to 16 hour days that the union members have been talking about, and then you'd have these longer breaks afterwards. What's happened with streaming is that there's just more content being produced all the time. There's more shows. So the members are getting more opportunities, but what they're not getting is time off. And it's really difficult to turn down work. So they're just becoming exhausted through that process. It used to be these periods of a lot of hard work and then these periods of time off. And then because seasons don't exist in TV anymore and because Netflix just needs an endless supply of movies, those long hours are now just all year long. Exactly. And then the second issue is that they have these negotiated deals that treated streaming, I would almost say, as a sort of secondary or niche thing. And then in the last few years, it has become a much more primary way people actually getting this content. There's always been this tentative agreement between the studios that are producing these shows and IATSE to treat streaming as still what was called a new media property. And now they're finally pushing against that. It's like, we know the compensation. We know how much you're making on these shows. And our basic contract isn't paying the way it pays for traditional film and television. Because if a film makes $100 million at the box office, that film. People buy a ticket to go to that movie, and then you know people paid to go to that movie, but you can't break that down the same way with a streaming film. Exactly. So there's different ways to sort of approach it by budget, but the last thing that Netflix, Amazon, Disney want to do is somehow, A, have to release the data of how many people are watching these things, and B, have to pay either above the line or below the line talent some sort of percentage of that based on viewership. So this is IATSE and film workers in general. This is, we're including the writers and the actors. They have all these contracts negotiated. And for the most part, would you say these contracts are based on the old way of doing business in Hollywood, right? Yeah. So tell me more about how movies used to be distributed prior to streaming. How were these movies funded and, and how did they come out? And how did the labor work? So if you released a film, you would have your big box office number to start off that weekend, and then all the deals underneath it, so your cable television, so HBO or Showtime. For your American movie channel or TNT, you would negotiate a deal, and then eventually ABC, CBS, and then foreign sales, toys, whatever. All this was built on what's called a downstreaming effect. So if you do well at the theatrical box office, they kind of pour onto each other. And all the talent would get a certain portion of that. So if you were a top actor, say a Tom Cruise or a Nicole Kidman, 
you could negotiate maybe something like 20% of all profits if you were very strong and powerful. But even IATSE gets a certain portion of that money at each level of the sale. They get a certain percentage based on it. And this is what's really changed in streaming because A, you don't have that downstreaming effect. It's just, it shows up on Netflix. It exists there theoretically in perpetuity. And there's no necessarily sharing of the pot at the same time. That's key, right? Because a movie before... You make a movie, it's a modest, mid-sized movie, right? Not even talking a huge blockbuster, but you have the box office and a portion of that is negotiated to go to labor. And then you have the sales for it to be aired on TNT a few years later, like every weekend. And then a portion of that counts as the revenue that gets to the labor. And then you have the DVD sales or the VHS sales. And now it's just like, you make a thing, it goes on Netflix, no one tells you how many people watched it. It seems a lot harder to negotiate your cut of that. And unless Netflix tells people how many watched it, Netflix actually just made a change before they were telling you how many people watched the first two minutes of a show, which sometimes the trailer just it starts playing automatically. You left the room, you went to the bathroom and suddenly you've counted as a view. And I think it really hurts talent, right? Like talent since the 1950s has been you negotiate your film based on how well your last film did. If Mm -hmm. you have a big hit, you get a better contract negotiation. If you don't know how well your film did on Amazon Prime, how do you negotiate your next contract? How do you know how much you're worth? So stars are not being compensated the way they used to. Also, the -the below-the-line employees are not getting paid the way they would be on traditional projects. So that's the compensation side of it. But I want to switch over to talking about the working conditions on set and how has streaming affected just the day-to-day experience of being on set and the kinds of days that you are expected to work and the conventions on set, like the meetings that you might have. What kinds of complaints do people, production staff particularly, have? With all types of production going all the way back to the 1910s and 20s. The more days you have to spend on set, the more you have to pay. Any show, any film is budgeted essentially at a per day average. And any time you can eliminate days, the better you're going to pay out. One of the big issues in the IATSE contract is lunch fees, right? Being able to just take time off from your 14-hour day for lunch, and maybe a producer says, we're skipping lunch today. Now, there's a fee that producer has to pay, but sometimes these producers are like, that fee is worth it to us, because if we have to add another day onto production, that's a lot more money. So we start to make those decisions. The fact that you're running a 14-hour day, that you're willing to pay the overtime, theoretically, as opposed to letting people go home and sleep. And so I think what's really happening happen with streaming is there's more production, but they're always being squeezed because we don't have those traditional ways of financing these things and profiting off them. Everyone's looking for ways to cut corners. And so the IATSE agreements, at least for the past, right, have sort of said like, oh, well, this film is only budgeted at this. So we're actually not only going to work you harder, we're going to pay you less at the same time than you would if you were doing the theatrical film version of this. 
So this is actually, and tell me if I'm off base here, because I've been trying to figure out how or whether these conditions affect the product that comes out of it. But your description of how the studio system worked and then the period of film and television where it was, if you made a movie, everyone involved wanted or needed that movie to be a hit or to at least make its money back. So each movie was an individual product that needed to earn itself back. And then a TV show, your end goal was syndication. You wanted it to be successful enough that you could go for 100 episodes so that it could be sold to be air in reruns, which is syndication, for years. Then everyone would continue to make money on it. Meanwhile, like streamers like Netflix are notorious for just canceling shows after a few seasons when they've, they've said, we, we will get no more value out of this. We have no reason to continue doing it. And I wonder, like... If what you are trying to build is a library and you don't care about an individual picture being a blockbuster, does that lead to shoddier work and shoddier working conditions? Yeah, I think you're actually onto something, Alex. Start with if you go back to 90s television and what used to be called pilot season. And we've all heard about these like famous pilots made for different shows that sounded really exciting and then they don't get picked up and you never see them. And that was the way that television worked, right? The television networks would analyze bunch of pilots, so one episode, and then choose their select ones to go and actually shoot a full season. And the first one that said, we're just going to shoot full seasons. We don't do pilots. We just do full seasons. And I think for a lot of workers, usually once you get into a full season of a show and really once you get onto the second season of a show, you have a good sense of your career trajectory. That work's going to be there the next year and the next year and the next year. You have job security. If you've been working on the Big Bang Theory, you know that the Big Bang Theory is not going away anytime. And it's, it is a form of job security. You're right. But Netflix will go two seasons, right? So you build your entire career around this show and then it just suddenly drops out of you and you have no idea that it was going to drop out of you because you don't even know how well it was doing. And I think a lot of this is that Netflix is willing to take these theoretical risks or these risks that it thinks it is creating. They'll play it out for a season. They'll get the buzz without necessarily then having to deliver the goods all the way down the line. And I think the other thing I want to say about this is, right, if you're a writer in Hollywood, you would maybe work for five, six years, you get your first film or television show, and then you slowly start digging from your archive of scripts you've been working on. And now, like, you're being flinged to throw out your, like, fourth or fifth worst thing, and that's just automatically getting <laughs> produced in a way because it's something that exists and it's ready to go and we can start shooting it in two months. Well, this keys into the question that we started the show with, which is, has streaming made it harder to find good things to watch, whether that's TV or movies, because you have kind of half-baked original content. And then the other thing you have is endless franchises. And there isn't this kind of like peak TV that we were promised in the middle. How has the rise of streaming affected what's being made? The reason that, say, a company like Netflix or Amazon is always targeting these intellectual property that were like, do they really need to remake this show? Do they really need to do a new version of this film? Is in terms of building an audience, right? You used to build around a film star or maybe like a director like a Wes Anderson, and certainly they can still sell certain films. But I think for a lot of these studios in terms of where they know they can at least get an audience to stream it on day one, if you have a known fan base, then at least someone's going to show up once you produce the entire season. 
Yeah, what I find really interesting with the way IP has taken over everything is I feel like you get a lot of projects now that have a recognizable name attached that it's only tangentially related. There's so much stuff out there. The only way to guarantee a few people will click on this to watch it as if it's got a name they've heard of and not to disparage the show because it's a very well-produced show but like Fargo the show was like a series of original ideas by a filmmaker and TV producer who might not have ever gotten his original ideas produced if he didn't attach a name to it that people had already heard of I haven't watched the foundation show but I imagine an original science fiction idea would be a lot harder to get produced to be a television a high-budget television show than saying here's Isaac Asimov's foundation or something like that Yeah, I think the thing is, it's just, you know, you talk to these directors and writer-producers who are in the middle, it's just harder and harder to pitch the show and get the financing without that sort of tie to intellectual property. And it's true that, like, the studios are being more flexible in terms of what you can do with the intellectual property, and Fargo's a great example in that way. But it is, like, you have to have that sort of attachment to IP just because of the way that... These studios are just scared about what something is when it looks original and how it might look to either the financiers or to the audiences and that no one's going to show up theoretically. Yeah, and I'm sure you saw the news, but Taika Waititi will be directing uh, Tower of Terror based on the Disney ride Tower of Terror coming soon. (laughs) And we forget, right, this is like actually like the fourth or fifth Disney theme park ride production. And this is actually Disney recognizing how Disney Plus is technically a money loser for the company, but the theme parks are the best profit-making business they have. And the more they can find ways to tie these together, the classic form of synergy that brought us Disneyland in the first place in the 1950s, (laughs) the better the world of Disney that will slowly consume us all will be. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. So after all that, uh, what are you going to watch tonight, Laura? Probably, you know, a lot of trailers, just fruitless <laughs> clicking through trailers. And then I'll probably just watch instructional videos on YouTube of people like demonstrating how to use different hand tools or how to arrange their closets. <laughs> that's your YouTube, like instructional videos? DIY YouTube. That's uh, that's yeah. what has filled the storytelling void in my viewing <laughs> habits. But we began this episode with my dilemma. And you've remained very objective during the whole discussion and haven't really said whether you're having the same problem. Do you find it difficult to find stuff to watch? Well, it's funny. I would say a combination of things has uh, made me basically quit TV to a large extent. I can blame that on cord cutting. I got rid of my cable, having a kid, the pandemic. But, you know, to some degree, I had a very similar dilemma to yours, and then I just sort of gave up on it. And so I'll, I'll probably be watching YouTube as well. You know, my feed is probably a little different than yours, I think. I'm curious. <laughs> you know, there's there's like urbanist YouTube channels about how well the streets are designed in the Netherlands. Okay, so you're the, the more highbrow. <laughs> well, I don't know. You've got high and low YouTube. <laughs> there's also like, there's a guy I love who his thing is just that he just gets old gadgets and computers from the 90s and like assembles them. And like, that's great. That's my kind of stuff. I can watch that all night. It's very soothing. <laughs> It's very, very soothing. Yeah. I've, it is. I've been watching videos of this guy who like finds tables on the sidewalk and then he applies like paint stripper to them and polishes them. And that's like a good 15 minute video. Yeah. Yeah. And no gaffers or below the line talent had to be exploited to make it. Yeah. On the other hand, it certainly wasn't a union production. <laughs> no, no, it <laughs> definitely wasn't. <laughs> the Politics of Everything is co-produced by Talk House. 
Emily Cook is our executive producer. Melissa Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoyed The Politics of Everything and you want to support the show, one thing you can do is go to wherever you listen to the podcast and rate the show. Every rating and review helps. Thanks for listening.